0: From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dana Perino, and I'm here to let you know everything will be okay. Last week, we spoke to working moms who shared how they work to keep their lives balanced to handle the stresses of motherhood and work. You heard from Kennedy and Michelle Chase, but you also heard from my mom. And little did I know my mom was planning to surprise me for Mother's Day and my birthday. It was amazing, and Peter pulled off the surprise. Moms are the best. This week's episode is all about climbing the career ladder and knowing your worth. In government, there were pay scales that I fell under, so I didn't have a lot of leeway to earn more unless I moved up a level. Then, when I had my own business, I had to calculate how much I should get paid for consulting work based on how much time I'd spend on the project and how intense or difficult the endeavor was. When I moved into television, I worked with a lawyer who helped negotiate my compensation. For me, that was a good way to handle discussions of pay, I am not comfortable talking about money. Peter is much better at it, so I rely on him for that, too. Someone I needed to speak to for this podcast is Lydia Finette. Lydia is Managing Director, Global Head of Strategic Partnerships at Christie's, where she's raised more than half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. She's also author of one of my favorite books, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. I referenced this book many times in my book, Everything Will Be Okay, and I'm so thankful that Lydia was able to join us for an extended conversation on commanding a room and putting your best foot forward. Lydia, tell me about growing up in Lake Charles, Louisiana.
1: Uh, growing up in Lake Charles, Louisiana was wonderful. I loved being in a place where you could be outside all of the time, which is hilarious because I live in New York City now. But it was a wonderful childhood. You know, my parents were very close. My dad would always drive us to school in the morning, and we spent all of our time either swimming in the lake or playing outdoors. I think childhood was different then. You know, you could just sort of roam freely, and I had three siblings, so that's kind of what we did.
0: Everybody that I know from Louisiana, I love you know donna brazil is a good friend of mine and um mary madeline and um of course all that crew but when i go down there it's just such a special place i spent a lot of time in louisiana um after hurricane katrina of course um as well so um when you were growing up when people asked you what do you want to do when you grow up what did you say
1: Well, I never said that I want to be an auctioneer because that was not something that I was aware of as a career choice. So I wanted to be a lawyer like my father because he was always in court and we used to get to watch him every once in a while whenever he would do anything that he thought was exciting. He would tell my mom to bring us and we would sort of sit in the courtroom and watch him up in front of people. And I just always thought it was such a powerful place to be. So that was really my first choice. I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then obviously life took a little bit of a detour tour.
0: How did you so then what was your either realization or your big break when you realized that auctioneering could be something you'd want to do?
1: Well, I was in college, and I didn't know anything about the art and auction world. You know, I had been to museums when I was younger with my parents, but there was never any understanding in my life about auction or art as a business. It really, to me, was something you either bought a poster in a college bookstore, or perhaps you went to a museum and saw one of those pieces, you know, once in your life. And I read an article in Vanity Fair magazine about Princess Diana's dresses and how they were sold at a place called Christie's Auction House. And, you know, Even if you don't really know that much about the auction world, I expect that at some point in your life, you may have heard on the news about this moment where Princess Diana decided to sell all of the dresses that she'd worn in these very memorable moments in her life. And what I remember is not necessarily the dresses or Princess Diana, but reading about this place where all of New York society showed up in black tie and they really just were there to bid on these dresses to raise money for a hospital back in the UK. And it really captivated my imagination. And from that moment on, I decided that I wanted to work in hmm. the auction world, which was hilarious because I didn't know anyone who worked is, in the world. I think that's amazing
0: world. because I t- like I, I didn't know. Well, I actually did know a lot about auctions growing up but it was of a very different kind. It was um, cattle and horses um, and livestock. And um, (laughs) those were different, but obviously similar concept. So in your book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, which I love and I buy for everybody. um, You You talk about how you were very persistent in trying to get an internship.
1: Yes, very (laughs) persistent. And
0: so for, for young people who might be thinking about, especially in covid times how are you going to get an internship what was what was your persistence like
1: well i just realized that when i i found this place that i was going to work even though obviously i didn't know anyone who worked there i had to tell every single person i had ever met that i was going to work at an auction house because if you are a young person in the world today i will tell you the most important thing about realizing dreams is getting other people involved because the more people who know about something that you're interested in doing the more people who are out there who can help you or pass information back to you. And so in this case, I had told every single person that I ever met after reading that article that I wanted to work in an auction house. And my father met a woman who worked for Christie's auction house and introduced us. And so, after speaking with her, she really affirmed everything I'd read in the article. And so I decided this was divine intervention. And I asked her to get the internship coordinator's information for me. And she gave me the phone number. So again, this story takes place about 20 years ago. So you just have to imagine that there was a time when a there was no such thing as a cell phone, and B, there was no such thing as caller ID. And I think we can mm-hmm. all agree that wouldn't life be better if you didn't know who was calling? And that's exactly what happened to this poor internship coordinator. Because when I <laughs> called her on the first day, I said, you know, I'm my name is Lydia Finette, and I'm so excited about this internship that you have, and I would love to be part of it. And what I didn't know growing up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, was that New York City internships are Highly competitive. And so, you know, I was calling a couple of months before the summer, and this internship program had been closed for months because (laughs) there were people who were much savvier than me who had, you know, had their resumes with all of the polished things on there, and I didn't have any of those things. So, all I had were my wits and my persistence. And so, I really saw this as the opportunity to tell Mrs. Libby, the the woman who I was calling every day, a little bit more about myself every day and really try to work my way into this internship program that was full and had been full for months. And the funny thing was, she just wasn't really having it for the longest time. But after I called her for two straight weeks on the last day, I thought to myself, you know, this is not working. She's obviously getting a little irritated. I think I just need to ask this question differently. So when she picked up the last time, I said something like, hi, Mrs. Libby, it's Lydia Finette calling from Louisiana. Please don't hang up the phone. I just have one quick question for you. And I asked her about the internship program and why it was capped at the number and why there was no wait list available and nothing was going to happen. And she said, you know, the, the internship program is capped at 30 people because we take two groups to museums and the museum docents don't want to take more than 15 people around. So we really can only have 30. So, you know, now I'm going to get off the phone. So I said to her, so what if I became the intern who didn't go on the museum group tours? Because obviously all of these people have interns during the day and then they leave in the afternoon and maybe someone's going to need someone for a project or, you know, just to pinch hit. And I could do that. And it was the first time that she didn't say no and try to hang up the phone. Mm -hmm. She hand and hawed a little bit. And then she kind of thought about it and said, you know what, I'll call you back. And an hour later, she called me back and she said, you know what, Lydia." we would be happy to offer you a modified internship. So unless someone can't go on the museum tour, you will stay in the office. And that to me was the moment it all started because I knew, you know, and Dana, I think we're a lot alike in this sense, like I knew once the door was open, they would understand how hard I was going to work and that I would always have a smile on my face and I was going to be, twice as Mm -hmm. diligent, making sure that everything that I said was going to get done was done and more. And that's really the best way to prove yourself is to get in there and show them that you are going to try harder than every other person there and show up and show up with a smile and be ready, willing, and able to do anything they ask you to do. And that was how it all started for me.
0: You talk in your book about the difference between, um, well, women who mistake persistence for pushiness. Yes. And how can we rethink that?
1: Well, I think that a lot of times we think that we're following a model that we've seen someone else do, like a hard charging, you know, this person's going in for something, so they're just going to keep fighting the battle. And I say, one of the greatest lessons I learned in Louisiana is you catch more bees with honey. You know, I don't ever, even from stage as an auctioneer, I never go on the attack in terms of persistence, trying to get something I want. I try to find that that angle mm. that still allows me to use my femininity to get what I want in a way that doesn't seem super hard charging and super aggressive, because that is not inherent to who I am and it's not who I want to be seen as. So I think that persistence can come across in a lot of different ways, but I choose to use it as a soft means of getting what I want. And I get what I want and I am persistent, but that doesn't mean I'm you know, screaming and yelling to get things done. Mm.
0: I love that. Um, you also... Uh- you have and actually I interviewed you for my book. Uh, Everything will be okay because I well I love your book and you have so much good advice in yours. But in particular, I'm really bad about talking about money uh-huh. and finances. You are not you are very good at it. Did, were you always good at it or how did how did that come to be?
1: No, I was not good at it. I didn't grow up talking about money. In fact, it was something with a Southern father and a British mother that was very much not talked about. And I think as a result of that, I realize how important it is that we do talk about it you know I didn't know what a credit card was I didn't know how a credit card worked and one of my best friends in New York when I was 21 I mentioned to her that I had a credit card and that I used it but I wasn't going to pay the minimum balance because I was going to get sort of a tiny bonus at the end of the year at Christie's and I was just going to use that to pay it off and I, I honestly think her jaw was unhinged she could not even believe what she was hearing because her father had worked in finance and had educated her about the importance of good credit her whole life. And so she sat me down mm-hmm. and was sort of like, this is what you need to be thinking about. And it was a course correction for me because honestly, if you're going around thinking that you know, it doesn't matter if you spend money on a credit card, you don't have to pay things back. like That is not the mentality of someone who's going to be successful because they will not own their own power and be able to own the life that they want. So that really was the first thing that happened. But ever since then, and in these moments that I talk about also in my book about realizing that I hadn't negotiated for a salary that I should have been negotiating for years, all of these lessons that I learned made me realize that I had to take the emotion out of money that i had to stop thinking of money as something that was going to make me cry if i didn't get what i was going to want and rather i needed to think of it as business and that even in my own life money is a business that allows me to do what i want to do so if i'm going to make enough money to do it then i will get to do it and the only way i'm going to get that is by asking so you know ask for money don't be afraid of it open speak candidly and openly about it i do with my children all the time things cost money and that is going to make you live the life that you want to live if you have a good control over that.
0: We'll be back with more of this interview after this. You write, um, when you're doing a negotiation, you should make them wince. (laughs) And even the thought of
1: doing that makes me wince, but I want to get better.
0: I want to get better.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, and I, it's so funny because after the book came out, I remember the head of HR saying, "Thanks a lot, Lydia."
0: And
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Well, you're going to have to be good at saying no. Yeah, I mean, I think it all—it's it, always going to make us wince a little bit when we feel like we're putting ourselves out there. But I think on the flip side, how frustrating to walk out of a conversation if you—if you had a conversation where you asked for, you know, say, a 15 or 20 percent raise in your salary, and then two years later somebody said to you, oh, we had 40% to give you and you didn't ask for it. So we just took it back and gave it to someone else. Mm. That's information that would break your heart, right? Ooh, yeah. So don't ever think think about it in the, in the reverse terms. Don't think about it as what you're asking for. Think about what you're leaving on the table if you don't ask the question. And by the way, if someone asks for 40% and there's only 15%, they're still going to get 15%, but at least they asked.
0: Do you, uh, are you teaching, uh, you have wonderful young children um, and obviously, they're, and they're young, but do you yeah. when you think about um, teaching them about these things in their life do you have a different I wonder what your approach is with them
1: I'm just very candid mm-hmm. you know I, I talk a lot about even with my husband and, and me the fact that we're both equal earners in this marriage and that you know every dollar that we make goes towards something so if one of my children loses something that they, they wanted very badly. And the expectation is that we're going to get another one. I set them down and explained to them like mommy and daddy worked very hard to make the money to pay for these things. So when you lose it, you are losing something that costs money. You have to understand that there's an association with money and things. And so these things don't just grow on trees. I mean, you know, it's a joke, like, money does not grow on trees. And so making them understand that and then always making them thoughtful about, Oh, you, you know, you got this from the tooth fairy. Do you want to, Put that away, or do you want to? You want to spend it? Like either of those things is okay, but let's just talk about the fact that there are actually two different things that you can do with money. It's not just spend it, spend it, spend it. You can also put it away for something else. Do you have
0: spenders? Are you know? You have three. Are are some spenders and some
1: savers? um, My eight-year-old is a little bit of a spender. Mm -hmm. Uh, My daughter, my daughter is a little bit of a spender, but she also is good about giving me money to put away, but, Ah. you know, she gets a dollar for something. She's definitely always wanting to go get like a candy bar or something. Good for
0: her. Live a little. You got to live a little. You talk about rejection in your book. And I I, I try to address that as well in terms of you are, there is going to be rejection in life. That's just going to happen. Uh, Disappointment will be something that you have to deal with. I think that's a really tough emotion for some people to deal with, especially women. I think that they um, take, disappointment and rejection very hard. Um, But I try to write about resilience. And I think that you have some really good take takes on how to deal with rejection and to set yourself up for success in the the next time around.
1: Right. Rejection is something, as you said, it's going to happen to all of us it's the question is, how do you get back on the horse? Like, how do you rebound from that? And what do you do? I think the biggest issue with rejection is it stops people from trying in the first place. And that is where, if you can do one thing in your life, if you could push through that feeling in your stomach, that makes you not try for something, you have to understand that that is going to literally open a new door to you. That gives you so much confidence when you feel like you've hit the place where even if you get rejected, you can absorb that. You can be sad about it and still move past it and try again. So, you know, I always say with rejection, I mean, you know, when I was, when I was writing my book, I have in total about 30 case studies. And Mm -hmm. I started, and these were women who had asked for advice about different parts of the book. You know, my original list was over 60 people. And I remember, sending out the email asking the first woman if she would do it. And her email came back pretty quickly. And this was like a very high profile woman. And I was very excited about having her in the book. And she said, you know, I'm really sorry. Unfortunately, I can't do it. And my contract you know, doesn't Mm. allow me to do this. And it felt like, I mean, this is a feeling we will all know well, it feels like you get punched in the stomach. You know, you might get like a little bit of an adrenaline, maybe you want to cry. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, that didn't feel great. But next time it won't feel so bad. And by the end, I mean, you know, I was firing off an email every 20 minutes. Yes, no, rejection's coming in left, right, and center. And out of that original 60, I only ended up with 15 who ended up in the book. Because, you know, that's what rejection looks like when you're asking people to write something for a book, as you know. And so I would just say, like, don't let it stop you from asking. That is the key with rejection, because over time, the more you get rejected, like I say, ask for things you know you're not going to get because you need to get used to getting rejected. It's like exercise. You yeah. get used
0: to- In the paperback edition that you just released, you um, included a, an additional chapter about COVID and how that affected your work, your family. And now we have all of these people uh, graduating and they're um, about to enter the workforce. But even people who aren't graduating, who have been in the workforce or lost their jobs during the pandemic, hopefully, because the economy is getting better, they can find a job that they really like. I'm just curious how you're thinking about the pandemic right now and how that might change work for better or worse.
1: I am such an optimist on the other side of the pandemic. I just think it is going to be an incredible time for creativity. I think, and, and I borrow this phrase from two of my my most savvy business friends, that the greatest companies. Of the entire decade upcoming will be built, either have already been built, or will be built in the next six to twelve months. Wow! Because the you know the market is booming, there is energy and excitement, and people are looking for things to do and new ideas. And I think the pandemic also uprooted so many conventional norms. You know, even in Christie's, where I've worked for two decades, I. I would tell you that in the past year, we've had more changes than we've had in the 20 years that I've worked at the company. And so this is the time for inspiration. This is the time to really go after what you want to go after. And if you see a white space, fill it because there is the need and there is the want. And I think in the next sort of year, year and a half is, as we were talking about before, I mean, we keep joking about the roaring twenties, but I think we're all starting to feel that as we enter the time of the year where the end is near Oh, yeah, there's going to be some partying
0: going on. I can feel it. Uh, I'd like to ask this question. Do you have advice for people for when do you know it's a good time to try to move
1: on from a job? That's an interesting point. You know, I always say to people, you need to think about a job in two different ways. Is the job paying you for the life that you want? You know, is this the job that is paying the bills for the life that you want? Is this the job that is allowing you to put food on the table for your family. Like there are very different, there are very different instances for all of us in terms of what we have monetarily. So what does that money do for you? Do you need the benefits associated with your job if you get them? And if the answer is yes to both of those, then stay in your job and start your side hustle and literally do them both. Because this is something that in my job I've learned over the many years I've worked in my company, there's room for creativity outside of the job that is sometimes paying your paycheck. And if you explore that enough over time, you could build that side hustle into something that will allow you to monetize it to the point that you no longer need your job. And that's definitely a great way to do it. Can we there, talk about
0: yours? Can we talk about what you did during the pandemic, that great idea you had?
1: Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, my, my whole idea came from really the information coming out of an Instagram Live that I started in response to the fact that all of the charity auctions that I'd been taking for almost at this point, 16 years, really all of their business models fell apart overnight. I mean, if you want to raise money on stage, you get 700 people in a room, crowded room, give them tons of drinks, lots of snacks where they're sharing things. It's like as as un-COVID friendly as you could possibly be. (laughs) Um, And then I get on stage and get as much money as I can from this crowd who's having so much fun and give it to the charity. So as you can imagine, that all fell apart uh, the minute that COVID happened. And so in response to that, I had this moment where I think we all probably had this moment, a very deep, dark moment during COVID where everything I knew had kind of fallen apart. I live in New York City. My friends had scattered all over or in the city living in some sort of horrible existence just because of the unbelievable noise and just sadness around them. And I think we were all in a very tough place at that point. And I received an email from a friend asking if there was an, anything I could do to help this charity that I had worked with for many years. And so I started an Instagram Live, which Dana, Dana was on. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I asked, I saw it as a moment for women to share not only their stories, but business advice, things that they had seen, things that they were currently seeing. And I asked people to give money to the River Fund. And that was really, for me, this amazing lifeline back to the life that I had remembered pre-pandemic and also a lifeline into myself who had gone from someone who was on stage and doing a million things to being in a house with my family, homeschooling three children with my husband, trying to juggle our two schedules back and forth um, and just sort of existing for a while as we tried to figure out what was going on in the world. Uh, but from, from this Instagram live came all of these new ideas and relationships and ultimately I ended up launching my own version of Masterclass where I sold the ideas of sales, networking, negotiations, and public speaking to people um, in classes of 25 people and sort of intensive work at workshops to really help them hone those skills during the pandemic. So it, for me, was a really creative moment and very fun. And it's something that I've continued doing even, you know, as it's been, oh my gosh, almost over a year now that I've been doing it, which has been amazing.
0: And you say that women should have three streams of income.
1: Yes, three streams. Although I did hear Nicole Lapin say that we should have seven. So I'm still working. No, No, well, especially post-pandemic. Wow. Um, But I do think it's so important that we think about, you know, if there were ever another global pandemic. Now that this is something we've all been through, let's hope it doesn't happen again. But, you know, if one stream of income falls apart. You still have two others, or three others, or in her case, I guess six others, that you can go to and pivot to and spend your energy trying to make those bigger. So, you know, speaking for me is, is a sort of side income, and I started doing a ton of it during COVID. Our company, Chrissy's, where I'd worked for many years, had sort of asked everyone to take pay cuts. And so that became a direct correlation for me. I could speak more and also take that pay cut, and that didn't ultimately change what my, my sort of landscape of financial means looked like during the pandemic, which was very helpful.
0: But for, so for women that are hearing this and thinking, wow, I need to file, I have three streams of income. It, you're not saying like three different like big salaries necessarily. It could be, uh, it could be a amazing. little something extra.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the amazing thing about COVID and what we all saw is there is an ability to monetize a skill set. You know, I, I said to my babysitter once, who had worked for a company doing sort of social media assets. I needed a couple of graphic design things done, and I said, "You know, have you ever done any work outside of of where, what you were doing before you lost your job?" And she's like, "Oh yeah, you know, I was a graphic designer." Well, there you go. <laughs> that to me is a side hustle. And I said, Well, please let me know if you ever want to grow this business, because I could definitely think of about 50 people who have small businesses and don't have the ability to bring on an agency, but need that kind of help. And there all of a sudden is a different revenue stream for her hmm. in her life. So that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's something that you love to do, you have the ability to get it on the world through social media, you have the ability to also build it up just within your own network. And certainly if there's any potential for sharing of information, people are always looking for those types of courses and classes online. I love that. How did you get over um, any fears of public speaking? Practice more than anything. I've always liked being on stage. It's something that as a child I used to sing and I enjoyed doing theater, but public speaking is something that really takes practice and it doesn't have to be in front of hundreds of people. You can practice standing up in front of two people. Sometimes the nerves are almost worse when it's a smaller crowd. <laughs> I, I
0: know. Yep. <laughs> yep. No, I'd rather do a live broadcast to millions of
1: people. Sometimes than yes, you know, smaller I, I fully room. understand. I always <laughs> say, you know, an auction of an auction of ten people is a little bit scarier than an auction of thousands for sure. Um, but I do think that people often think that you have to have this huge forum to public speak when in fact you don't. You can really practice public speaking in every meeting that you're in, in every sort of moment of conversation. If you're if you're in kind of any club or any board, or especially if you're younger, if you're in school right now. Use the opportunity to understand that public speaking and the fear of it comes from the rush of adrenaline that happens right before you start speaking. Mm-hmm. So don't fear that adrenaline. Use it. Use it. it. Yes, energy. exactly. exactly. My, as my exactly. speech coach said, "If you,
0: it's okay to have butterflies in your stomach as long as you make them fly in formation.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to look at it, honestly. Um, just a
0: couple more <laughs> questions before I lose you. What are the sort of two or three main characteristics you're looking for in younger people that are wanting to come work at Christie's?
1: I will always look for someone who is interested in getting their hands dirty in everything. What I don't want ever with anyone who works on my team is someone who will only do one thing and that is the only thing that they're interested in doing i'm always looking for someone who is creative and thinking outside of the box and coming to me with different ideas whether or not i'm asking that's the first trait always um, second i would say you know you really want someone who likes being out there in my in my role in partnerships especially like i need somebody who's out and about, meeting people, going to gallery openings, looking at art, coming back with different ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing better than being in a pitch when someone on my team says, oh, it's interesting. I was looking at so-and-so at this gallery, or I was at this great restaurant, or whatever it was that allows them to tie a story together um, and makes them sort of seem as if they're in the know, which is always very important when when you're working in the art and auction world, because so many of our clients are constantly traveling. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest tricks I used to teach my team when I was in running the events department at Christie's, I would always say, if you're traveling anywhere, anywhere in the world, anywhere in the US, wherever it might be, and you are in a, in a city, stop by the nicest restaurant, stop by the nicest hotel, the nicest bar, wherever it might be, have a glass of water, but understand what it looks like. So that if one of our clients who may be staying there for a month or a year, whatever it might be, happens to walk in the door and mention it, you've been there too. No mm-hmm. one knows that you weren't staying there; you were just having a glass of water. Yes, so you know, I love really this understanding that. And even in New York, you know, if anyone's here, any of the great cities in America, you know, if you're traveling for business, I have so many people are like, oh, I go and I have room service in my room after I finish a long day at work. I am out walking a city from end to end, trying to see things and understand it and and really immerse myself in it, because that is what makes life interesting to me. And certainly that's what our clients, especially in the art world, the the ones that I see and interface with a lot seems to always do. So kind of meeting people Mm
0: -hmm. on that level. I I suggest that people go on a big road trip across this country. Um, Because when you're doing when, when you meet people at networking events, one of the great all-time questions is, where did you grow up? Yeah. Oh, I grew up in Muncie, Indiana. Oh my gosh, I was there. I went to this <laughs> diner. And then you have a connection. And because my husband and I have, well, I've had a chance to travel a lot, one, um, obviously, in my work. But even before then, I was lots of road trips. I grew up in Wyoming and Colorado. So we did a lot of New Mexico, Arizona, Utah. And then we lived in Southern California. I worked in Silicon Valley. I did some work up in... Um, Seattle. I did graduate work in Illinois. I lived in Washington, DC. I used to um, be a, go down to South Carolina. Not Now I'm more in New Jersey. And oh, I got to go to Maine. Because of the, and I feel like because of seeing so much of this country, I can figure out a connection to almost everybody based That's on amazing. a, tr- uh, based on a, just a, even if it was just, as you say, you just stopped through, you drove, you drove through
1: and you picked up some Twizzlers,
0: yes. wherever it might be. <laughs>
1: Exactly, it is, and it does. I think also, especially when it comes to networking, there's nothing better than to be able to find that commonality, because that's really what makes networking fun. You know, it's not supposed to be people stuffed into a boardroom with plastic name tags. It's supposed to be. Mm. You know, I find I've met some of the coolest people I've ever met on airplanes. I mean, I have multiple friends who I've met
0: my airplane. Met my husband on an airplane. Oh, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So then, here's my last question for you, because I look at you. And I think, how does she do it all? Because you've got um, your career, and it's in, in a remarkable one. Um, and you have these three lovely children and a great husband, and you're in the city, and you're doing all of these things. Um, do you have any secrets to your ability to manage all of this?
1: I would just say that every single one of us has what we consider our all, you know, our dream life. And when I look around at what I'm doing, I've always wanted three kids. I love my job. I have a great husband who's a great partner to me. And I also love New York city. And so to me, I feel like I do have it all, but I have my all. And there are many people who have no interest in being in New York city. Certainly we saw this during the pandemic, Um, but there are also a lot of people who have no interest in having five different things going on every evening. And that is fine. So figure out what you want from your life, figure out your all and make yourself happy. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks, you know, don't, don't worry about what you see on Instagram or what you see on the TV about people's lives and what it should look like. The only, the only thing that matters is that you have the life you want. And if you do, then you'll be happy. And I think that that really shines through.
0: What are you most looking forward to when everybody is back
1: and doing all of these auctions? Oh, I'm just looking forward to that moment when I get to go back on stage for the first time after over a year and raising money for nonprofits. It really is such a passion, and I can't tell you I get goosebumps. I get you know tears in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. really it's, it comes through,
0: Lydia. It really uh-huh. does. Um, uh-huh. Well, we'll be there cheering you on. I don't oh, know thank- if I'll bid.
1: you will if i'm if i'm the auctioneer you will that's how that works you know that actually
0: one time when i finally had a little bit of extra um disposable income we went to a a italian american women's federation event or something like that it was a charitable auction at the end and i'd never really participated in one and there was a round trip tickets and hotel stay in rome for two people and i was said well peter like do you think that we, I could just... And he said, sure, of course. Well, then we start bidding it up, and then we ended up with it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, I can't take two weeks off of work. And I called my mom uh, in Denver, and I said, Mom, whatever I'm about to say, just say that you'll say yes. Oh. And we made it happen, and they got to go. And you know what? That was money very
1: well spent. Yeah. Yeah, and then the beautiful the beautiful thing about it is all that money is going to help someone else. Yeah, and that's, yeah, you know, it was for scholarships. Say- so exactly, and people always say like, I can't believe you push that hard. I'm like, if I don't push that hard, then the child doesn't go to camp for the summer, right? Or you know, a pediatric cancer patient doesn't get that money. So it is incumbent on me to push as hard as I can with a huge smile on my face, and at the end of the day, make as much money as possible. So.
0: Well, I think that everybody can see why you're one of my very favorite people in the world, not just in the city. Lydia Finette, thank you so much. It was such a
1: pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: So much of Lydia's advice really spoke to me and helped me think things through as I wrote Everything Will Be Okay, especially about finding your strong voice and learning how to harness your worries and anxieties and turn it into fuel that can be productive for you and not stand in your way. Next week, what is the best graduation advice you've ever received or heard at a commencement speech? I'm joined by my America's Newsroom co-host Bill Hemmer and Dr. Meg Jay, clinical psychologist and an associate professor of human development at the University of Virginia who specializes in 20-somethings to find out what advice they have for recent graduates or graduates at heart. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay.